Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Charlie Matz, filling in for Ben Blakey. It's Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. Have you ever had a situation play out in your life where you only truly understood the perfect plan of God once you looked back? Once you were able to stand at the destination that God intended you to reach and turned around to see the unpredictable path that laid behind you, only now could you see how all of the twists and turns, ups and downs, peaks and valleys were under the care of God's sovereign hand as part of his sovereign plan. Well, if you're listening to my voice as a born again Christian, then the answer is yes. All of us who have found ourselves repenting and believing in Christ can look back and see God's sovereign hand in drawing us to that moment as he worked on our heart, loving us while we were still his enemy, while we were still sinners, and he brought us from death to life. And once we were an adopted child of God, those stories continue to get weaved throughout our life. But now we are on the other side of Romans 8.28, in which all things are worked together for our good, a.k.a becoming more like Christ. In today's reading, we see God's sovereign hand on display in two different ways, one through a parable about salvation and the kingdom of God, the second through the life of a strange character, how God uses unique circumstances to humble this character, destroy an enemy, and glorify himself. Let's start with our New Testament passage in Matthew 22, 1-14. Here we have the parable of the wedding feast. So one note about parables and Bible genres. We must take into account what Bible genre that we are reading and interpreting to ensure that we don't approach the text out of context. Some of the genres that we will run into throughout scripture are narrative, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, the gospels, epistles, apocalyptic, and of course, parables. We need to be careful to interpret parables for what they are. We don't read them as illustrations. Now, they can be illustrative, but they are always more than that. We must know what prompts the parable to interpret them correctly. We don't want to read them like fables, these stories used to convey only one moral lesson. And here's the bottom line. They are essential to know what the kingdom of God is like and how we should live in it. So we should ask ourselves, why is this parable here? Why did the author include it? On that note, we can deduce a few things about this parable. First, that God's patient character is on display. He has invited some to his feast, but they pay no attention. So he pursues them again, and this time they even beat some of his servants and even kill them. So now he grows angry, destroying the murderers and burning their city. It's possible that this is a reference to the future destruction of Jerusalem. At some point, as you see the king's patience on display, you might have thought of 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. A very relevant passage even to what we're reading here today in this parable. Next, in this parable, we see the king invite all kinds of people to this feast, filling the wedding hall with lots and lots of guests. 
Then there's this part of the passage where there's one man who doesn't have a wedding garment. Now remember, these guests were grabbed in haste, so it's probably accurate to assume that none of them had the right garments, but they were supplied these garments by the king, just as we are supplied the righteousness of Christ. And this man chose not to wear the supplied garment. This may be referring to those who are aligned with the Lord and Christianity on the outside, but have not truly submitted to the Lordship of Christ. They don't want to accept the righteousness supplied by Christ, but they want to bring their own righteousness to the table. Overall, this parable is a good reminder that there are two camps of people who will find themselves in outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First, there are those who outright reject the gospel. Second are those who have the appearance of alignment with Christ and the church, but have not submitted to the Lord completely. And if you think about those two camps of people, you and I have no way of knowing where people stand by looking at them on the outside before we approach them with the gospel. So perhaps this is a good reminder that we must invite everyone we can to the banquet to feast on God's good grace. Whether they take us up on that offer or attend for the right reasons is only God's responsibility to sort out. Now that brings us to verse 14 when it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. What does this mean? Well, this really comes back to the two complementary ideas of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The general call of the gospel message is clear, repent and believe. And scripture is clear that we are to take that message out to the entire world. Those who do respond are the chosen and God is sovereignly in control of who are his elect. These two concepts might seem mutually exclusive from our limited human understanding, but they are completely reconciled in scripture and that's not a problem for our eternally wise God. If you would like to do a deeper study into the sovereignty of God, I recently taught a class as part of the Attributes of God class through Compass Classroom at Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, and I'll put that link in the show notes. As we meditate on this parable today, let's respond to it in a few ways. First, let's praise God that he chose us, that we are his guests eternally. More than that, we are his children clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Second, let's share the gospel with everyone that we can, knowing that the doors to God's feast of grace will not be open forever. Third, let's have a high view of God that leaves room for the mystery of God. If we could explain everything about him and the way that he works, he wouldn't be God. And that thought really sets us up for our Old Testament reading. In our New Testament reading, we have a parable of a feast in which God is glorified by his sovereign grace. In our Old Testament reading, we will build and eventually end at the scene of a feast in which God is glorified by his judgment of Israel's enemies. The way that God works is so much higher than the way that we work or think. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we're going to see this reality on display through the life of Samson. God uses this odd character who throughout much of his life is a bit of a loose cannon to glorify himself and judge Israel's enemy. We're going to follow this Old Testament story in Judges 14 through 16 today. Starting in chapter 14, we see the woman that Samson chooses to marry and how that probably wasn't the wisest choice, although God in his sovereignty uses this choice for his purposes later, as we'll see. We see his wife be threatened by these men who are supposed to solve the riddle that Samson gives them. And then she weeps to wear Samson out until he tells her this riddle. 
In Samson's anger, which we don't know if it's righteous indignation or not, he goes about 23 miles away to Ashkelon to beat up 30 men to get the clothing he promised to the men who solved the riddle. But then, while Samson is gone, his wife's father, his father-in-law, gives her over to his companion. Clearly, the father didn't want his daughter with the enemy and used Samson's absence to manipulate the situation. And then in chapter 15, Samson brings a symbol of reconciliation to his wife and her father, a young goat. Clearly, the father is an unrighteous man offering his other daughter to Samson. This father was afraid of the Philistines and Samson, and he was trying to play both sides. So Samson, in anger, he gathers up 300 foxes and takes the time to tie all of their tails together. Then he lights a torch tied to their tails and does incredible damage to the Philistine farmland. If nothing else, Samson is oddly creative. Then in a strange case of ironic justice, the father and daughter are burned by the Philistines for provoking Samson to such a thing. And then we see these 3,000 men of Judah show their fear of the Philistines. They are fearing these enemies more than they are fearing God, and that's a problem. So God uses Samson to show them the power of God. Although the men of Judah captured him and bring him before the Philistines, it says... When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand, and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And then that brings us into chapter 16. And as we see Samson's life play out even more, we see examples of his sinfulness, his loose living that is not in accordance with God's law. This is a good reminder that God doesn't condone sin ever. Later in this chapter, we'll see some of the consequences of Samson's sin. Just because we see a sinful act explained in scripture doesn't mean that it is condoned. Remember my earlier comment about genres? This is another important reminder to make sure you know this genre you're reading and interpreting. Narrative passages of scripture sometimes explain historical events that aren't condoned by God. Sometimes we are learning valuable insights into how to live, and sometimes we are learning about how not to live. Chapter 16 is also a good reminder that God does use people for his purposes, even when he doesn't condone all that they do. We learn that Samson loved Delilah. Clearly, he was weak for women of poor character, and they had allegiance to the Philistines, which will ultimately be the end of him, but also the end of several thousand Philistines in God's sovereign plan. Now the plot thickens as Delilah is offered what would be a large amount of money to try to find out where Samson's strength came from. So Delilah goes to work trying to wear down Samson again, and after several failed attempts, Judges 16.16 says, And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Now, this is a good reminder that it's so dangerous for us to flirt with sin. We can't stay strong for the Lord when we are worn down by the enemies of God who we keep in close proximity. If there's one thing we can take away from all of the narrative passages of scripture, it's that we cannot isolate ourselves with those who tempt us to sin and come out alive. Even the strongest man in Israel couldn't withstand the siren call of a sinful woman. So Samson finally gives in and tells her that his strength is from the Lord, but it is associated with his Nazarite vow found in his long hair. As one commentator put it, when Delilah became more important to him than God, his strength was removed. 
God's strength leaves Samson after his hair was removed. He was separated from God. The worst consequence for a sinful, selfish life lived in worship to idols. Now, as he's serving time, his hair starts to grow back, and it's possible that this is in alignment with his heart becoming humble and him repenting. We can't know for sure, but that seems likely given his final act of obedience to God. In the final act of Samson's life, we see these Philistines celebrating their false god, Dagon, thinking that this false god has something to do with the failure of Samson, an ironic stroke of pride given that God has placed Samson in the perfect position to destroy the maximum amount of these idol-worshipping enemies of God at this very celebration. As they celebrate, they bring Samson in to entertain them. Like I said, little do they know that God is at work, working all things together for his glory in this moment. And Samson says something interesting here as he leans against the post. Verse 28 says, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. In an act of what could be best described as repentance, Samson is willing to die for the Lord's work. Seemingly not concerned about his own glory, but the glory of the Lord. Israel and their God is glorified in an instant, mocking the false God of Dagon and taking out many enemies of the Lord. If we look back on the life of Samson, we might scratch our heads a bit considering how often he made poor choices and gave in to sin. But if we look closely at the story, we will see the reality of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. On our own, we are foolish, weak, and low, so that we may not boast. Only by God's grace, by His power, are we wise, strong, and lifted up, so that we may boast in Him. I don't know what type of situation you find yourself in today, but I do know, if you're born again, that regardless of what situation you are in, God will use it to grow you to be more like Jesus Christ and to glorify himself. May that help each one of us to find peace amidst the chaos that can sometimes ensue in this life. May we rest in the fact that God doesn't experience storms. He creates them and calms them. He isn't like us, helpless and beaten up inside of them. As we go about our day today, let us consider our God, that regardless of the situation, we can be sure that he will use it for his glory and our good if we are in Christ. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today in Revival from the Bible. Ben Blakey will be back tomorrow. For more resources, check out RevivalFromTheBible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to CompassBible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.